As a recap of last week, some of you remember what I said, but I don't remember anything that I said. And if you weren't here with us last week, uh, Bill came down with it during the middle of class. Uh, he did, uh, I don't know if you've seen those, uh, kind of was a trend a couple years ago where somebody would have video of a blanket and they would have their dog in front of the blanket and they, while the dog knew they were behind the blanket, but they dropped the blanket and they were gone, the dog's left wondering. That's what Bill did in class during the prayer. He got someone else to lead the prayer and they opened their eyes and he was gone. Um, it's a lovely trick if you can pull it off. And so, uh, as I shared about 9.30, uh, I got a call, and you're up. And so, last week, you got to just kind of hear what was going on in my, my household, in my life, and um, kind of the, the scriptures that I lean on to, uh, to help us through where we're at in life. And I'm, I know that a lot of you have those same things, and we go through phases and different points and places, and uh, if you were here, you got to see a snapshot into mine. This week, however, we are continuing with a series that Bill started into a couple weeks ago um, about connecting. We have talked about connecting with life, connecting with truth, connecting with our church. And today we are focusing on the importance of connecting with our community. So before we start into that, I want to set a baseline for that word community. And in doing so, I want you to visualize three circles the center circle being you. And we're going to, this is going to be our definition of what influence looks like. So who is my community? On your outlines, that's your first, your first space this morning. Who is my community? Here's how we're going to define that. People in my sphere of influence who are far from God yet share a common interest with me. Okay, so when I say that phrase, sphere of influence, that's what we're talking about. And so visualize a sphere. And so in this bigger sphere amongst spheres, you're in the middle, and this is you. You have control over yourself. It is the only sphere of influence in your life that you have control over. You may think as a parent, a young parent, you have control over your children. You don't. It's going to get way worse before it gets better. You don't have control over your spouse. They fall into the second sphere that is around that one. And that is this, our sphere of influence. It's people that we have a connection to, some closer than others. <coughs> Excuse me. That because of that relationship we have with them, we do have the ability to influence for good or for bad. And then number three, the third sphere is the people who we have no control over, we have no influence over. They are so far from us in our life that anything that we do cannot and will not connect with them. There is a, a passage in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that talks about as Jesus is ascending into heaven, he makes a statement like this. He says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What he was doing is he was saying, you're going to start local, and you're going to work your way out. You are going to be my witnesses. And so they had a sphere of influence. They got bigger as it went out. And so you could look at it like this. Someone could maybe visualize our Jerusalem. That local would be our, our friends, our relatives, and our family. Maybe Judea is our neighbors. Maybe Samaria is our work acquaintances. And maybe the rest of the world is just that random person who you happen to meet waiting on an airplane 
that you had a one-cup conversation with. And so we have these different spheres of influence in our life. And so as we think about that, those going back to that definition, those who are far from God, yet we share a common interest with, I want to try and impart this thought upon you this morning. We need to have a connection to them. Here's where, now that we have the who, I want to talk about that word community. Next on your outline, number one, community is something that is personal. And I know that sounds weird, so we'll dive into it in just a second. But then also community is something that is collective. So when I say personal, what I mean is you yourself have your own community outside of this body of faith. You have the people that you work with. You have your kids' soccer parents or your, uh, your neighborhood. You have your spouse's set of friends that may be different than your set of, your, your set of friends. So we have this personal aspect of community. But as a church, when we become a part of a body of believers, we are adopted into a new family, into a new community. And so for us, it's collective. Here in downtown Tyler, Texas... Is our church, we have a sphere of influence in this community as a church. Not just as individuals, but as a group of believers. So not personally, just personally, but also collectively. And before I move any further, I want to be honest about something. I think that as you work through a series like this about connecting, as a person who has accepted Jesus Christ and has taken that call of faith in their life and has put their trust into the Lord, it's easy to accept, I need to connect with the truth of Scripture. It's easy to accept that I need to connect with the body of believers who can encourage me and walk alongside me. It is a lot harder to accept that that call to go into all the world means your world. We hear missionaries and we hear talk of four and far away lands, but our mission field is here within our sphere of influence. But often it seems like Christians in America have taken this approach that connecting with others outside of faith is optional. That it is not for me. What if I don't want connection to my community? What if, especially during the the way that this world has gone in a direction I completely disagree with, I just want to withdraw completely. I want to take my group of people and we're going to go buy this little private island and we're just going to go live like hermits. Away from the world, because then it can influence us. Because right, because we don't sin when we're around each other. We're, we, we've got it. We got it all figured out, right? I have a friend who tells this story. He's, he's a preacher friend, and he tells a story about the first time that this statement really resonated with him. He was 11 years old, and he had a teacher in class. Uh, he went to a private Christian school, so they can have conversations like this. Whereas if you went to public school like I did, this is probably not a response your teacher could have given to you. But she was asking about if you had the financial means and the ability to do so, would you move off into the middle of of nowhere and get away from people and just be at peace? And so he said, I I thought about that. And I said, well, yes, ma'am, I think I would. I think that if I had the financial ability to do that, then I would. And she paused for a moment. She was 49 years old. And she said... Last year when I lost my husband to cancer, that's what I wanted to do. I was tired of having to receive 
people's version of empathy because I wasn't ready to take it. I wasn't in a place where I could. I was tired of being constantly confronted with the fact that I was alone, that I, I, I had lost my partner, and I wanted to withdraw completely. She said, but I kept coming back to one question that I could not get away from, and that was this. What about the people that God wants me to reach? If I completely withdraw from the world around me, who will tell them about Jesus? And for an 11-year-old, that was a, a turning point in his walk with faith. Because let's face it, whether you're 11 or 55 or 75, it is hard for us to live in a way that isn't fully and completely reflective of self. What is in this for me? How do I benefit from this situation? What is in, it, in this relationship for me? And we miss out on the freedom that comes from a relationship that is not about us, that is about a creator, that is about a giver of life and not a taker of life. This morning we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you are following along, whether it's on a device or in a, on your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And in this passage, Paul is, deep down what he's doing is he, he is addressing a question. And that question is the same question that this teacher forced this room of 10 and 11-year-olds to wrestle with. Why in the world would I want to get involved with the messy lives of other people? So here's where he begins. Starting in verse 14 of chapter 5. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who should live no longer live for themselves... Live not for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So look at the next blank on your outline there. In reading those verses, we, it, it's pretty clear. Christ's love for me and the world gives me new purpose. Christ's love for me and the world give me new, gives me new purpose. I can't help but die to myself and live for him. In this entire passage, Paul is using the gospel and the good news. I can't help but die to myself and live for him. So what does it mean? I want, I want to give you some presuppositions. And I want you to ask yourself if you can relate to any of these. When we are evaluating friendships in our life, when we are evaluating relationships in our life, are we looking for what we can give to that other person or are we asking how does this relationship benefit me? So you're probably not sitting at home making a checklist of Cody Abel's. What can he do for me? That's good. I like that. No, I don't know how I feel about his smile. I'm going to put that one in the maybe category. We'll see. We don't do it consciously. It's a subconscious give and receive. What's in it for me? So let's take it a step further. Do we make any other presuppositions that may be considered a little bit more black and white? Maybe you learn for the first time that somebody who you've had a relationship with is a Democrat or a Republican. And based on that, not based on the soul that resides within their body, but based on a decision that they have made politically, that person has lost value to you. What if you find out, maybe you have a conversation with somebody for 30 minutes on the phone, and you don't know how old they are, but you're kind of resonating with what they have to say, and then you find out they're Gen Z, or they're a millennial, or they're a boomer, heaven forbid. I was Gen X, I didn't raise mine, so 
And we just automatically give, assign people value based on an external piece, not of who they are. What if someone has significantly less education than you? So are, are you superior to them on some level? It's just this snap judgment that we make. What if they make less money than you? Do they still have that same level of value? Do you look differently at them? Take all that and consider this. Isn't it true that if we are willing to reach out into the world around us, we will meet someone who falls into each one of those categories? And can we still see a soul who needs Jesus beyond the differences that we have with those around us? Because consider this. If Jesus was only in the business of serving and caring for those who already had everything right, we would not be the recipients of his love. Because when you received it for the very first time, you were broken. You were a sinner. You had no hope outside of Jesus. Paul is telling us, don't you dare view another person as just something physical. They were created in the image of God, a God who loves us so much that he sent his son for us. And every person that you and I come across in our community will spend eternity somewhere. Think about that for just a second. That should give us pause. If we are going to be this new purpose, if I can't help but live for, myself, live for him and die to myself, then that had better change the way I react with others around me. That had better change the way that I see my community. The next blank on your outlines, if you're following along, is this. We have become a new creation in Christ. So this is what we have to do. We now see our community as Jesus sees it. Precious, eternal souls who he has died for. So how do we do that? How do we See people that way. It's the next two verses. This is, this is just like a Hall of Fame passage when it comes to how we view the world around us and how we interact with the world around us. Verses 18 and 19. All of this from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us, committed to us, the message of reconciliation. This word reconciliation comes up four times and is used four different ways. If you were to say in these two verses, it is the focus, it is the star of the show, it is the central thought behind it. And at its basis form, the word reconcile is an accounting term. Now in a room like this, I'm going to jump out on a limb. And I'm going to say about half of you don't know what a checkbook is. <clears throat> I, I grew up, and, and when I was, my, my second to last merit badge before I got my Eagle Scout was personal management. And as part of personal management, you had to learn how to reconcile a checkbook. I haven't written a check in two years. And I'm fine with that. But part of reconciling is that you take your checkbook, your ledger, and you compare it at the end of the month with what the bank has given you. Do your check numbers match up? Do your amounts match up? Do you make it all balance out? And if it doesn't, then you have a problem. Really quickly, what does biblical reconciliation look like? Jump down to verse 21. We'll come back to verse 20, but jump down to verse 21. 
God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in other words, for someone to be right with God, they have to be without sin and live a perfect life. What time is it? 1040? I've already missed that today. So I have no hope. I have no hope of reconciling my own statement. My life account is out of balance with God. But what did God do? He sent his son Jesus, and in the eyes of the bank where I have come up short, Jesus says, I'll make up the difference. What you cannot do on your own, I will do for you. Think about it like this, maybe, in terms of our relationships with other people. Maybe you've heard the phrase, irreconcilable differences, where we feel like the distance between two people has grown to be so far that it is an immeasurable distance to come back to. And so, in those situations, the relationship ends if it is irreconcilable. The difference is between us and God. We are the ones who have created the distance, and yet God continues to close the gap, continues to pursue us. Even though he is the one who has been offended and hurt, he instead runs after us and takes it upon himself to forgive us for all that we have done. God wants to give us peace, peace in spite of our past and let our past become a platform for his grace to stand upon. That in spite of our imperfection and our brokenness, we have a message that's worth sharing with other people. This is a message that is desperately needed in our world today. There's this perception that as people of faith, as people who spend a Sunday morning in church in a building like this, that we're, we're here and you're here. However inaccurate that may be, because it is very inaccurate. Some days I'm, I'm here, but I'm here. We don't always wear that on our faces. And so if we don't have a conversation with somebody, if we don't get involved in the mess and the mixture and the manure sometimes of their life, they'll never see our brokenness. They'll never see someone who has been reconciled and made right with God that was broken. Maybe you've heard that statement before. God uses broken people to relate to other broken people who need the ministry of reconciliation. I'll take that a step further. God gave you and I this ministry of reconciliation. That's literally what Paul says in verse 19. He says, you have the message of reconciliation. I've given it to you to give to other people. Because if somebody is not going to seek God out on their own, who will share my message if not you? God gave us this ministry because he knew this need within our own souls. That when we reach out to other people, when we are somebody who wants that reconciliation with others to offer hope to other people. It reveals some of our own insecurities that we needed to deal with. The next part of your outline blank reads like this. He offers reconciliation and peace to all through Jesus. And he decided to get his message out to the world through his followers. Now, bear with me for what I'm about to say because I hear people don't, you know, we live in a world and in a time where the, the, the truth of Scripture just needs to be pounded into people. That you're only going to hear it if I yell it at you. You're only going to hear it if I put it in all caps on a Facebook comment. I'm never going to let you into my life. I'm never going to give you a piece of my heart. But I'm going to let you know where I think you're, you belong. If that is someone's perception of people of faith, no wonder they want no part of it. 
No wonder they have no desire to engage with that. As opposed to the idea that we invite people into our lives, invite people into our home, invite people to coffee to have a conversation with us and reveal our brokenness to them. Present our insecurities on the table. Because that's what they are. Our insecurity that we won't know the right thing to say. Our insecurity that we might possibly offend someone and that we won't have an opportunity to share it with them again. But wouldn't you rather share it with them once than never? People need hope. I said we'd come back to verse 20. That's where we'll finish. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. You see that word ambassador? We are Christ's ambassador to our community. But before we do that, I want to address what that looks like. Before we just go out and the trumpet of the Lord and just smashing and knocking over tables, bull in the china shop, I believe the Bible is very clear on how we present truth and correction to believers, to those who are already of faith, as opposed to those who are not. If you go back just one book to 1 Corinthians, you see Paul giving very direct instruction to a church about correction. He says, this is not who you are. You are living apart from God. You have, need to be reconciled to God for the sin that separates you so that you are not living this way any longer. So he's talking to someone who shares his baseline. He's talking to someone who is already of faith. And he's talking to them direct. We like that. Like, let's, let's be direct. Let's be honest. Let's be upfront. Maybe in your church family. I would encourage you, if you see someone that you think needs a little redirection, to actually take the biblical approach. And not call your elders. Not call one of your ministers. Not talk about that hurting person behind their back but actually take a moment and invest in their life. To call them. To show an ounce of human compassion and care. Not for the purpose of redirection, but for the purpose of care and concern that will lead to a redirecting of truth. Because you see, when Jesus gives us, gives us a picture of what it looks like to talk to people outside of faith, it doesn't look the same way. In Luke chapter 19, we see an interaction with a wee little man. And if that doesn't tip off for you people who we're talking about here, I don't know what else will. But when you grow up, it's all, I don't even use the word we anymore except for when I'm talking about Zacchaeus. But in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, we see an interaction with a tax collector and with a savior. A broken man. I'm not even going to get into what the reputation of tax collectors was. I'm sure in a room like this, a lot of us are familiar with the corruption that many of them Face. And so instead, when Zacchaeus is sitting there looking down at Jesus, instead of pointing at him and condemning him in that tree, telling him, laying his sins bare before everyone else, he says, I'm coming to your house today. Let's talk about it. And if you go back and finish through that, that story of Zacchaeus, in verse 10, he, he, upon hearing the truth, turned his life over to the Lord, promised to repay those who he had taken from. And Jesus said in verse 10, salvation has come to this house. So what does it look like to be an ambassador? Going back to Paul's letter to Corinthians. For us, it's someone who gets sent to be a representative 
Maybe in another country. Maybe for your company. Maybe for your class as you're the person who gets to present the project that you've been working. You're an ambassador. You're a representative. We have been called to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. To communicate a message that we have been given. So I want to add one asterisk to this that is not in your outlines and that is not in your notes, but I have become painfully aware of. Many of us live in such a way that we don't interact with people outside of our shared faith. We have cocooned ourselves and withdrawn from the world around us. Some of us are in, in jobs where it's hard to interact with people. Maybe you, work, you literally work from home. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom. It doesn't negate the importance of what you do at all. But it does require a different avenue, a different foot in the door. So maybe if you, if you have children, that is through shared parenting activities, whether that is people that you know from church or people that you don't know. Maybe that is sitting in the bleachers while you watch your kids just struggle to hit a ball. As they get older, you'll be more and more impressed by how, how good they get at that. Maybe you don't have kids yet. And so, like our good young youth minister over here, Tucker, you go to the foundry, which is a coffee house, if you don't know what that is, and you sit there during your lunch break and you read your Bible. And some young person comes up to him and begins a conversation with you because of the way you're living your life. That happened to Tucker a couple days ago. And you begin a conversation. His particular conversation was somebody who had grown up in faith but had found themselves very far from it. And I'm grateful it was Tucker because I know the way Tucker sees people. I know the way Tucker treats people. And he saw that person, that young man, as a man of value who God loved deeply. For every single one of us, we will come into contact with people. Maybe not every single day. I don't know. Some days you may just want to stay in bed. And I'm not saying that's not okay every great once in a while. But there are days when a door will be open and someone will be standing on the other side of that door. And God begs of us to see them as a soul who was created in the image of God. Not a skin color, not a previous former or current religion, not a political affiliation, but as someone who desperately needs to hear a message of hope. Acting out of love, being light in a dark world, being salt, a difference maker in the world around us. I don't know how you need to go about connecting to the world around you, to your community. You may already be doing a wonderful job at it, but I know that in a room this big and in an audience that we have online, there is somebody that needs to hear this message of encouragement this morning to find and be intentional about the relationships that we develop, about the conversations that we have, and about the lives that we lead. Because we have been given that ministry of reconciliation. That wasn't just the Corinthian church. That would have been written to anybody. It is up to us to share a message that we have been given. It's not unique or solely held by us. But it is one that needs to be heard by everyone. As we talked about in our class this morning, possibly y'all were studying the parable of the sower as well. And Chad Chauncey made the comment, it doesn't matter what kind of soil is available if no one ever throws the seed. Let us be seed throwers. We don't have to cultivate the soil, but we have to be people who love the person on the other end enough to give them the option to hear it.
If there is any way we can encourage you as a church this morning, point you towards the cross, help you begin that walk for the very first time, or just encourage you in this burden that we all share. It's a, it's a burden that is wonderful because it's a burden of hope. Not of, of, of destitution or of a dead end, but of hope forever. Not just hope for here, but hope forever. And if we can pray for you for that as well, we would love to. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?